Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I've got Terry Fakes with me this week, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to do part two of Genesis. Now, for those of you guys that listened last week and you saw the time on that episode, it took us an hour last week to get through 11 chapters, and uh, we're undertaking to get through 48 chapters or 38 chapters today. So uh, we're going to try and we're going to try and cram a lot in in this podcast. And to do that, uh, I want to make sure that we get the big contours of the rest of the book and then maybe we can jump into some themes. So we left off last week and humanity is in a little bit of a mess. Uh, They've just built this big tower. God has come down and confused their languages. We've had the flood. We've had murder. Things have not gone well in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So picking up in chapter 12. Where are we going from here? Well, chapter 12 takes a little different course, and we're introduced to a particular individual in a particular historic epoch, and his name is Abram. He'll become known to us as Abraham, so we'll use those names interchangeably. But Abraham is the focus of chapter 12, and his descendants, basically the Abraham story, if you will, Abraham and his descendants, are really the focus of chapters 12 through 50 of the book of Genesis. It's really the story of the Jews. The people that we know today as Jews start with Abraham and this particular family line. We're going to go through Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob And Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Genesis finishes out with a really unique story about those kids, those 12 sons, and particularly one of them named Joseph. So chapters 12 through 50 are the historical story of Abraham and his descendants and how God is using them. When we open in Genesis chapter 12, the stage is set by God making a covenant with Abraham. He had made a covenant with Noah in the past. He had made a covenant or an arrangement with Adam in the past. But now you see a covenant with an individual and his descendants. And so Genesis 12 through 50 is the story of what God is doing through this covenant and this particular group of people. One of the questions I had for you, Cole, is, and this is something people usually ask when they see 11 and they go into 12 and they go, wait a minute. For 11 chapters, God has been working with all of humanity, and like you said, it's not going very well. And now, all of a sudden, in chapter 12, the focus changes to this one individual and his descendants and their adventures on their God-given quest. What, why do you think that God now focuses on an individual instead of continuing to work with humanity as a whole? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I, I will... Uh, dispute a little bit of the premise of the question just to, just to set it up. If you think about the way that God interacts with people in the book of Genesis, we get a almost a telescoping pattern as we go through the book of Genesis. So we, we spend a few chapters on Adam and Eve. Obviously, we take up the line of Seth that goes into the flood. You have Noah. You have a couple chapters on him. But it isn't really until you get to Abraham that you get a focus, a a prolonged focus on anyone. So that that gives us two things to think about. First of all, the illusion that God has not worked with any individuals before that. So if you think about it, he obviously worked through the individuals of 
Adam. He worked through Enoch. We just don't give very much information mm-hmm. on that. He chose Noah right. because of his righteousness across the whole earth. Uh, he worked individually through Nimrod. He just happened to be working through wrath through Nimrod. Um, right. But he has been working through individuals in Genesis so far, but we don't get the focus and we don't get the promises, especially the prolonged nature of the promises, like we do when we get to chapter 12 with, with Abraham. And uh, I want to point out something. If you, have your, if you have your Bible open and you're looking at chapter 12, this is where the chapters are not that helpful. Uh, again, chapter and verse numbers, not inspired. Uh, and in fact, Genesis has its own chapter breaks. And this is one of the occasions where the chapters are, are in the wrong place. If you look mm-hmm. at chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Now these are the generations of Terah who is the father of Abram, Abraham. That's a chapter divider. Remember, we talked about this when we saw the generations of Adam. We talked about this when Uh we saw, uh, you see this five times in Genesis, the generations of such and such. And the interesting thing to remember is the generations of so-and-so doesn't mean it's about that person. It means it's about their children. So you have Father Abraham, but this is actually the book of the generations of Grandfather Abraham. Terah that he's about to explain to us. And it's this family who's now going to be the focal point, not just for the rest of Genesis, but all the way up through the time of Christ. So if you notice, we mentioned this in week one, if you go to Matthew's genealogy, he traces the lineage of Jesus from David and from Abraham. Abraham is going to be a prominent figure in the book of Romans. He's going to make an appearance in the book of Hebrews. He's going to be in Galatians. He is the predominant Old Testament character uh, for the rest of the Bible. And um, one of the things I think is significant about this is just the perspective of when we think this book was written. So we typically Mm -hmm. think of Genesis as eyewitness reporting. Somebody from the Washington Post is (laughs) watching as God creates the world and then following through the flood and all that. and just reporting what happens. But actually the way that uh, Jesus reports this and the way that we see from the reception in the history of the church is that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And if that's the case, then these were written after they come out of of Egypt in the Exodus. So if Mm -hmm. you think about it, the Jews are coming out of Egypt. They're at the slopes of Mount Sinai. They're getting the law. God is instructing Moses up on the mountain for 40 days. And he's telling him about what happened in the creation of the world. And then he's giving him the rest of Genesis as the foundational identity of who these people are. So one of the reasons we see such a focus on Abraham is he is the patriarch of the people that this was immediately written to. So the book of Genesis is not just a history of the entire world. It's specifically, and and especially starting in chapter 12, it's specifically a history of the people of Israel. And the beginning of the people of Israel starts with Abraham. Now, the thing that uh, we have to note from the text is, unlike Noah or some of the other people that God picks to use, we don't actually get any rationale for why God chose to use Abram. All we see Mm -hmm. is that they left the land of Ur, which is a idolatrous pagan land. We see earlier in chapter 11 that this is one of the lands that uh, the line of Ham had been uh, building in. 
It's a pagan uh-huh. land. He leaves there, and he's going to go who knows where. He'd just been called by God to leave, and so he does. And then God says to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise that Abraham gets is now going to be the foundation for the identity of Israel all the way up through the time of Christ. And I think the more Mm -hmm. attention we pay to the promise given to Abraham, the better we're going to understand the rest of the Old Testament and the work that Christ did to fulfill this promise in the New Testament. Yeah, let me jump in there a little bit, too, because I, I, I appreciate your point there that, that looking back, one of the reasons that chapter 12 on focuses here is this is the story of God's chosen people, the Jews. The other thing, though, is I think by the time you get to Jesus, actually before that, you have the Jews looking at themselves as really special people. And that's probably a misunderstanding of this. You made the point that there's no reason given why Abraham is chosen. Abraham proves to be faithful. In other words, he hears God, he believes God, and he obeys God. But there's no particular reason for this. I want to cast it in the first 11 chapters. If you think about it, you have God creates uh, the garden. It's good. Adam and Eve, they fail. They fall. They sin, and then by chapter 6, you've got people sinning all the time, and you have the earth to such a state that God says, "This I'm going to destroy this. And so he makes this covenant with this one individual, Noah, and he hits the restart button, if you will. And so Noah, he makes covenant with him and says, okay, let's do this. And of course, then you get down to chapter 11 in Babel, and you realize, oh my goodness, these people are still unfaithful. To me, you see God's attempts at redemption and I don't mean attempts as in God is unsuccessful, but you see the theme that God, instead of just destroying his people, he wants to redeem his people. He loves us. But when you get to chapter 11, you realize that humanity is bent towards sin. And I think it's interesting that God then chooses and says, all right, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it a different way, Mm -hmm. and picks Abraham. And I don't think you see success In other words, it's not like, okay, well, we picked Abraham and his descendants, and they're successful. Well, actually, they're not terribly successful. They also prove to be largely unfaithful as a whole. You really don't see success until you get to Jesus Christ, and you see that is the redemptive act. But it's just the method in which God pursues it. And to me, chapters 1 through 11 really put the exclamation point on the observation that we cannot redeem ourselves, that left to our own devices, we will be bent towards sin. Mm-hmm. I think one, one thing that crosses my mind when you say that is there, there is the question of why God goes through so many cycles of covenants and judgment with the ancient world before he gets to Abraham and lays down a uh-huh. covenant, then he's going to do it again when, when Israel comes out of Egypt, again at the same time that this is written and recorded in its present form. Uh, we're going to get a covenant there, too, that's very specific. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about open theism. Basically, was God learning from his own mistakes in Genesis? That's one of the questions that that is ingrained in the discussion about open theism. And the thing you have to think about is God, through this whole process, is showing mercy and judgment, the same thing that he's going to show through the rest of the Bible. And especially because 
in the days of Abraham, for example, how is it or why is it that people are not calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, there's some kind of problem with the transmission from parents to children to their children to their children because the entire world at this point goes back to Noah. Noah obviously knew God, Mm -hmm. and he knew what God had done. He knew the promises that God had made. And there's disconnects to throughout the generations to the children and the children's children and, you know, however many generations we have between Noah and Abram. The other thing that that makes you think about, though, is that God is allowing himself um, to be merciful and to be particular. So he's given all of humanity every opportunity at this point to call upon him, to worship him, to believe in him. And uh, it seems like a little bit of a scandal to us to pick one guy and then bless the nations through him. But he's been he, he has been putting himself in the place to bless the nation since the beginning of creation and mankind mm-hmm. has rejected him. And so he, this isn't actually a, an instance of God turning his back on humanity. This is an instance of God going above and beyond again to bless humanity through Abram. Right. And the, the significance of Abram really can't be overestimated biblically. I think about Paul's discussion in Romans he uses Abraham as the template, the definition for what it means to be righteous. As you mentioned earlier, he says Abraham believed God. It's not that he did anything to earn God's favor. He believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. And it Mm -hmm. it made me think this week as as I was prepping for this, uh, you know, if you did a poll of American evangelical Christians and you said, who are your top five Bible characters, most important Bible characters. Uh-huh. I thought to myself, if it were me, if it were most people I know, I don't think Abraham would probably make the list. I mean, I think Jesus is on there, obviously. Good point. Paul is on there. Uh, maybe King David is on there. Peter could could jump on the list. Adam would probably make it on the list. Um, but I, I think he probably would be in everybody's top ten. But I don't know that he makes it into the top five. And the interesting thing biblically is if you're a first century Jew or first century Christian for that matter, Abraham is maybe number two. (laughs) It's possible he's number three behind David, but he's definitely in your Mount Rushmore of Bible characters. That's the (laughs) level of importance that Abraham has. And and maybe at some point we should do a podcast. We'll we'll talk about the top top ten most important Bible characters. But for the rest of Genesis... We're explaining and building off of and reacting to this first episode with Abraham. So God comes to him. He makes this covenant. And then we're going to get a pretty good snippet about the life of Abraham. What happens next? Well, uh, Abraham, just give you the big picture, 30,000 foot view of how this is going to shake out. So Abraham is basically his story runs from chapter 12 to chapter 25. And a couple things happen in here. One is in chapter 12, you see the covenant. 15, you see uh, kind of the authentication of the covenant. You see an animal sacrifice to basically solidify the covenant. In chapter 17, we come back to the covenant, and you see circumcision as the sign of the covenant. So you're going to see this idea of covenant running through it. And 
One of the promises is for descendants. So you'll see Abraham uh, take matters into his own hand, if you, if you uh, know the story. And so he has Ishmael, not by Sarah, but by her servant. But then finally, in chapter 25, Isaac, the son of promise for Abraham and Sarah, come along. And that runs to, uh, then you see the, the next 10 chapters from 25 to 35 are the story of Isaac as the story goes on. And then finally, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, have two sons also, Esau and Jacob. And the rest is basically the story, a little bit of Esau, because he's not the child of promise. And then Jacob, uh, chapters 37 through 50, is the story of Jacob, now has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the book finishes out with those 12 tribes. So we're basically going to see this promise to Abraham play itself out through Isaac and Jacob throughout the next uh, 30, 30 chapters. Okay, so let me jump in here. The two two big episodes we get with Abram, and there's all kinds of fascinating stuff in between, uh-huh. but the two big episodes we get are his choice to take the promise of God into his own hands uh, with Hagar, and then probably when he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, which is in chapter 22. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the nature of the covenant with him and then the promise to him are both in play and and first really come into conflict in chapters 15 and 16. What's the deal with Hagar and what are the implications for the rest of the Old Testament? Well, that's a great question. So basically, uh, God makes the promise. Abraham believes him. God reaffirms his promise in chapter 15. says, your descendants are going to be more than the stars you can see in the sky. Well, after waiting a number of years, Abraham decides, and this has probably got a lot of application for us, you know, I believe God's going to do this, but since I'm old and Sarah's old and pretty obvious to Abraham, we're not going to have children, maybe God meant that it would happen another way. And so he basically engages in something that was not that uncommon in that time for a a woman like Sarah who could not have children. He sleeps with her servant, Hagar, an Egyptian servant, and has a son, Ishmael, with her. And that, in some sense, uh, is the line of Sarah. And so, barring anything else happening, say that's all that happened, Ishmael then would have been Abraham and Sarah's son and inherited and basically taken over for his father Abraham. So it's not entirely satisfactory to Sarah, but it was common in those days to perpetuate the dynasty, if you will, or the family, if you will. Well, it turns out that's not God's plan. And sure enough, some uh, angelic visitors tell him that he really is going to have a child with Sarah. And they, they, don't bel- they don't think that's very likely. But sure enough, a year later, they have a son, Isaac. The implications for that are that Abraham then ends up sending Ishmael away. He blesses him, but he sends him away and says, Isaac is going to be the one through whom God's promises are made. And there's enmity then between these brothers these half-brothers, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael goes on to be the father of the 12 tribes of Arabia, and that's from whom Muhammad, the founder of Islam, traces his descent. And then, of course, Isaac goes on to be the father of the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel, from whom the Jews trace their descent. And I think uh, the history between the uh, Arabs and the Jews is, is pretty legendary. 
Yeah, it just it's it's interesting to think and to imagine the conversations that had to have taken place between Abraham and Sarah and then Hagar afterwards, and and that had to be pretty uh, pretty tense set of discussions that they were having. <laughs> Uh, the the <laughs> yeah. thing you think about, though, is those discussions and that decision that they ultimately made in chapter 16 of Genesis influenced the three major religions of the world. In fact, uh, nearly half of the world's population is a religious descendant, uh, not, not to mention the uh, genealogical descendants, but a religious descendant of that decision. We have Jews. Through Isaac, we have uh, all of the Arab line that comes through, and, and really Muslims in general are tracing their spiritual descent through Ishmael. Christians are tracing their spiritual descent through Abraham as well. Uh, what a decision in the history of the world to, but. to do that. And then here's an interesting thing, too. So God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. And Abraham basically has the God helps those who help themselves mentality. And so he decides <laughs> yes. to, he, he decides that uh, there's no physical way this is going to happen. And he takes matters into his own hands. God, at that point, if God were being reactionary or, you know, God does know the future, he knows the decisions that, that we're going to make. I'm going to pose this to you as a hypothetical. God looks down. He says, "Okay, that's not that's not really what I had in mind, but uh, interesting interesting play here by Abraham. I'm just gonna make I'm just gonna make Ishmael the child of promise, and uh, we avoid the whole divided family, uh, the nations warring against each other. Uh, I don't want to put you in the position of, of guessing the mind of God, but what what would mm-hmm. have been different, or why do you think maybe God didn't do that?" Uh, that's a great point, and it lets me jump back on the open theism question. Just a reminder, because you've mentioned it, open theism is just the idea. It's actually an attempt to understand the Bible. There's a sincere issue behind it, but it basically posits that God didn't know that Abraham was going to do that, and so he's reacting to it. Uh, one of my problems with this is that basically, if you take that point of view and you go through this story, you see all kinds of misfires over and over and over again because people are doing really foolish things. Even Abraham, the man who trusted God, ends up finding his faith lacking at times, which I think is reassuring, by the way, because he's just like us. But at best, you see God as the bumbling inspector Clouseau, you know, with Mm -hmm. that kind of a view. And so if you go and say, well, okay, Abraham, you took it into your own hands. Well, you know what? Let's just go with this Ishmael thing. You know, I'll, I'll make that work out. Why don't, why don't we just go with the Ishmael thing? Uh, it doesn't. It's going to end up failing to explain everything that happens after that. It is far more reasonable and just clearly more orthodox to look at it and say, no, God knew this. He knew that Abraham's faith would fail in this instance, and God is using that. As I go into the New Testament and I begin to look at the book of Revelation and not to become a I'm really not trying to be sensational here. It does not seem unrealistic to me that the enmity that begins in the Old Testament will bring about the resolution of history in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. In other words, I do not think that... I think God foreknew that, and I think God is using it. I think the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have purposes to play in God's plan. Uh, So I reject out of hand the idea that God's just sort of making this up as he goes along, because I think there's more coherence in the biblical story, if if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. It resists the simple explanations we're tend, we tend to give in, in practical moments in our faith. Um, it resists us saying, well, you know, God, God knew this was happening. He's going to use it. That's definitely true. But sometimes we don't have the same timetable that God had in mind, uh, both on the on the side of Abram deciding to fill the, fulfill the promise on his own timing. But then also um, he makes a mistake. God decides that uh, he's going to use that mistake for his glory. But he does so in a way that Abraham could not have expected. Uh, and he doesn't take the way that seems the easiest from a human perspective. Uh, as the story of Abraham goes on, we get to the second really important episode of, of this story where God calls out to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, which is a pretty jarring story in chapter 22. And as you read it in the flow of this story, it doesn't make any sense if you don't know what's going to happen in the end. So all of a sudden you have this promised child. He's finally been born. He's obviously gone through a lot to get here. And all of a sudden God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. This just seems to violate every single thing we've got going in this story, everything we know about God. Uh, why is this story here in the Bible? You know, I'm going to give you one take on it. You may want to add to this. But again, if if I'm God and I don't know what Abraham's going to do, I think the uh, I think that's a pretty monstrous thing. You know, God says, go sacrifice your son because I'm testing you. Chapter 22 opens with this. After these things, God tested Abraham. He wanted to test his faith. And at the end of this, he says, I now know that you really trust me. But if he doesn't know what's going to happen, basically, let's suppose Abraham kills his son and God says, gosh, that's not the way I really wanted that to turn out. That's, That's kind of monstrous. I think not. I think God sees it. I think he foresees it. And I th- my opinion is the binding of Isaac, uh, which, by the way, takes a different form in the Koran. In the Koran, this story is written, the same story is there, but instead of Isaac being the one who's bound and uh, Abraham doesn't sacrifice him, God intervenes, it's Ishmael. And so you see the Muslims think that Ishmael really is the legitimate firstborn and have rewritten some of these stories to corroborate that. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I think this story is there for the reasons that it says. God wants to test Abraham, but I really think God is setting the stage, and this is a theme that we'll get to at the end. I believe God is forecasting the gospel all over this story. And looking back at it, we can see this idea of God says it's going to take the most precious thing in the universe. And for Abraham, that's his son, Isaac. It's the only link to God's promises. It's like everything's about to go up in smoke here to save you. And so he acts this out with Abraham. And since Abraham even is willing, he stops him, of course. God has no intention of letting him sacrifice his son or kill his son. And in that, you see a foreshadowing of what's really going to happen, and that is truly the most precious thing in the universe, Jesus Christ, is what it's going to take for redemption. Mm-hmm. What would you add to that, or how would you see it differently? That's a great way to explain it. In, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that Abraham had faith because he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if he wanted to, and that he would do that because that was what he had promised to do was bring about uh, the nation of, of Israel through Isaac. 
So Abraham was faithful in that. I, the connections here are interesting from a uh, just from a literary perspective, from a theme perspective, but they're really fascinating uh, on a heart level too. Obviously, you have the complete foreshadowing of God sending His only Son, His only beloved Son to earth as a sacrifice and actually having to go through with it that Abraham didn't have to go through with it. He was willing and he believed God and he, and he went, but God actually provided the sacrifice there. And then in, on the cross, he provides the same sacrifice uh, as well with his son. The other thing that's kind of cool, um, and the names obscure this a little bit, but they, they go to Mount Moriah which is uh-huh. the mountain on top of which Jerusalem is sitting, or at least the old city of Jerusalem and the temple. And this is a theme that we don't have time to trace through its entirety, but we'll come back to over and over again in these book overviews, is the, the land, the, the land of Canaan, the promised land, is significant for so many reasons. And, and within there, there are certain places that keep recurring. And this right. is one of them. So you have this mountain that, that Isaac is, is taken to be sacrificed on and God provides a sacrifice. Later, you see when David conquers the Jebusites, he buys and sets up the threshing floor for the site of the temple. And it's it, depending on how you look at this, it's either right on top of or right next to Mount Moriah. Then they flatten those off. They build the temple on there. And later you're going to see that uh, this place right on the same hill is where Jesus is crucified. And then obviously uh, close to the place where he rises from the dead. And so that theme runs through the entire thing. Now, the Jews, the Jews like to they like to get the most bang that they can out of these places. So when we went there, Mm -hmm. you know, they say this is where. This is where Isaac was sacrificed. This is where the temple was built. They add on top of that that this was the exact place that God bent down and scooped up the dirt and breathed life into it and created Adam. This is the place right. where the ark probably rested. I mean, you you, you can mm-hmm. get a little bit crazy with this, but there really <laughs> is a theme running through the story of the Bible that this sacrifice took place here. The final sacrifice uh, took place there. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty cool thread that runs through the Bible. The other thing that I think is significant here is God is showing Abraham that the child of promise is going to continue to be the child of promise, the one that God provided, even after he is old enough, because at this point he's a grown man. Uh, And it's not like God gave it to him. And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, you guys take it from here. God is still involved in the child of promise. And he's going to show that in these, in these later stories. So we Mm -hmm. get Isaac and he marries Rebecca. And the story of, of finding Rebecca is, is really pretty cool. Um, it's worth reading in chapter 24. Uh, Abram sends his servant. And this is, a, this is an amazing guy, this servant. Uh, he yeah. calls upon the name of the Lord. He finds Rebecca. He brings her back. She and Isaac uh, are married. And then they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau are famous even outside the Bible, as these two warring brothers. And we're going to get a theme here through the book of Genesis of brothers at enmity with each other. Started out with yes. Cain and Abel. We obviously have Noah's sons. Uh, we have cousins, Lot and Abraham, who are at enmity mm-hmm. with each other. We have Isaac and Ishmael. Now we have Jacob and Esau. Jacob's kids are going to be this way as well. 
but the interesting thing, again, just a theme that I would tell people to look up on their own time is if you read Genesis, you realize that even though these brothers are at each other's throats, they are creating these people groups that are going to war together. Uh, the brothers are reconciled by burying their father over and over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what we're going to see with Isaac and Ishmael. They come back together and they bury Abraham. We're going to see that with Jacob and Esau. But we right. have these warring brothers, and Jacob is the one who is fair, and he's kind of an inside cat. He is not rough and tumble, and he is Rebecca's favorite. Then you have Esau, who comes out, and he's named Esau because he's red and hairy. And he is a man's man, and he's a hunter, and he uh, is out hunting and, and working the land. And the famous story is he comes back, and Jacob is cooking, and he sells his birthright to Jacob for a cup of stew. And uh, then there's the, the trickery of getting the birthright from Isaac, and, and then the brothers are upset with each other. We get a great reconciliation story later in the book of Genesis. But uh, what, what do you think is the most significant thing from the life of either Isaac or his sons, Jacob and Esau, before we get to the story of Joseph? Oh, yeah, I think we need to talk about Jacob a little bit because I, I want to hear... I think you've got a different view of Jacob than I have. I'll give you kind of a traditional view of Jacob. Jacob's name is a, a bit of a word play on the idea of a deceiver, someone who's a trickster, someone who's a little underhanded. And if you look at the story of his life, I'll give you the 10-second version of it. He basically you know, takes advantage of his brother Esau, and instead of just saying, sure, brother, you're really hungry here, have some stew, he says, I'll give it to you if you let me be the guy that inherits. And Esau foolishly says, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, it's going to come to me anyway. So he tricks him, if you will, and Esau decides later he's going to kill him for that. Uh, You see Jacob then fleeing to his uncle back in Mesopotamia, and you see a lot of deception going on back and forth. I mean, he's met his match in Laban, his uncle. Jacob deceives his uncle. His uncle deceives him. And all the way, it seems, through his life, Jacob is known as a deceiver. He's kind of got that trickster. If, you, if you're a fan of Norse mythology with Thor and his trickster brother Loki, well, he's kind of the Loki, if you will, the trickster of this story. Uh, but I think you think Jacob gets a bad rap. So tell me why you think Jacob somehow redeems his, uh, his trickster nature. Yeah, I want to stand up for Jacob and set, set the record straight uh, a little bit here. <laughs> for, first of all, I, I, I think everything you've said is true. Jacob is a trickster, and he's known as a trickster through the Bible. I think what we have to decide is, is his being a trickster a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing? And uh, while I don't think the Bible probably advocates for a fully-fledged pro-trickster position, there are some <laughs> senses that we get early on in the Bible that his trickery may not be the, the uh, moral liability that we oftentimes think it is. Uh, the, the first thing would be that this kind of trickery actually runs in the family, and oftentimes it, it's, it's used for good purposes. If you think about Abram, he two times he tells somebody more powerful than he is that his wife Sarah is actually his sister. 
so that uh, he'll preserve their good. And in both times, God actually vindicates Abraham instead of punishing him. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, uh, this actually happens again to Isaac. Isaac does the exact same thing. Exact same thing, uh, right. With his wife, and he's vindicated. So I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say uh, Genesis commends trickery and that that's something we should just take and begin applying to our lives. But but I will say, you know, Jim Jordan, who has a great book called Primeval Saints, it's it's from a totally different perspective probably than most people have approached Genesis before. But he makes the point that the the divinely sanctioned way of dealing with tyrants in the book of Genesis is through trickery. Um and we do see that as the case. Now, the interesting thing with Jacob is he's a trickster and he's vindicated by God. But the things that he's doing fall in line with the things that God has already promised to do. This is where I think, this is where I think Rebecca gets a bad rap, too. So when you set up the story uh, the way we usually tell it, Esau becomes a victim. So Esau is just out right. there doing the right thing and... Um, He's just a great guy. He's a little hungry. His brother tricks him. He wants his birthright back, but he can't get it, and he ends up kind of a a fatally flawed hero. That's not the impression we get in the New Testament of Esau, however. We we get the impression in the New Testament that Esau was a sinful man, that he was not a righteous man, that... uh, he, in the tradition later, actually, we get the sense that he's an evil man. But at least in the New Testament, we get the sense that he was not uh, a righteous man. And in fact, we get the promise of God in chapter 25 that Jacob is going to be the one who gets the inheritance anyway. So we say two right. nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what we see Rebecca and Jacob doing is actually accomplishing the will of God. We see several times that Jacob is is a righteous man. In chapter 25, the same word, the same term is used that God uses for Noah in chapter 6, for Abraham in chapter 17, for Job in Job chapter 1, that Jacob is a righteous man, that he is pursuing the things that God desires. And when he and Rebecca trick Isaac, it's actually Isaac who's in the wrong, not Rebecca and Jacob. So he goes on, he wrestles with God. God renames him Israel, one who struggles with God. And the line of Israel and the tribes of Israel are going to come from him. So I'm not trying to make the case that Jacob never did anything wrong, but I am trying to make the case that uh, Jacob may have been a better guy than he sometimes gets credit for. And in fact, the story would vindicate uh, Jacob's actions more than Esau's and even more than Isaac's uh, when you look at it that way. So I don't know if you buy that, but that's that's my case. Well, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I'll jump in and, and give you a little different perspective, but I wouldn't argue that point that Jacob ends up doing God's will. And that brings in another really interesting theme that runs through this, and that is God's sovereignty. In other words, it looks like there are all kinds of fairly random things happening in the sense that people are making mistakes. Uh, Abraham 
you know, has a child with Hagar, and that causes complications. I would argue that it's part of God's plan, and he will indeed use that later. Nevertheless, as you're reading it, you say, oh, Abraham, why did you do that? Then you get to, you know, Isaac, and oh, Isaac, why'd you tell a lie about Rebecca? You get to Jacob, it's like, oh, why did you deceive your brother? And you see all these things happening that look like uh, bad things that are happening. And as you look at God's sovereignty running through it, you're exactly right. God's plan is that Jacob will inherit. And you see this idea, the same as it was with Abram, is it's not based on the merit of the individual. If we read the story of Jacob, I think you're right. He is in the right. He is pursuing his birthright, if you will. But we wouldn't consider him to be just incredibly upright about this. But the point is, God's sovereignty is is going to happen even with imperfect people. And I personally mm-hmm. think that's a great, that's a really reassuring thing because I believe he works our salvation through very imperfect people as well. So I don't know if I can go all the way to say that the uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Jacob, is, uh, is a good guy, <laughs> but, but I will say you, you make a very important point, and that is that what he is doing is furthering God's plan. And I think God's sovereignty plays itself out through these people that, frankly, look a lot like us. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, we have a, a pretty complex web of intergenerational sin patterns and strongholds, if you want to call it uh, generational curses, going on uh-huh. through the book of Genesis. Uh, we finally arrive. Jacob has uh, 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, his sons. And most people are pretty familiar with the story of Jacob and Joseph. So Joseph is, is at this point, the youngest son. He is sold by his brothers. You get Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat uh, that he's given <laughs> because he's the favorite. Ends up in Egypt. He is a righteous and upstanding man in Egypt. He gets framed, goes to jail, real jail. That's something. Some, one of the things we forget in the story of Joseph oftentimes is uh, he doesn't know the end of the story. He's waiting for God. God allows him to interpret dreams and to be remembered at the right time. He gets exalted to the very top of the chain of command in Egypt. And then when a famine hits the land, his brothers go to Egypt for refuge. And uh, they meet up with Joseph, but they don't know that it's him because he's in charge of dispensing all the food and he's in charge of the Egyptian benevolence fund at this point. And uh, they don't know it's him. He tests them and then he finally comes clean with them and he weeps. And and we get this really famous and powerful line at the end of Genesis in chapter, uh, chapter 49 and 50. We see the culmination of the story where, where he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. One of the strongest faith lessons in uh, the book of Genesis. And I, and I want you to wrap that up for us in a minute because that, that in and of itself is a gospel picture in Genesis. But uh, I feel like we, we'd be doing disservice to the book of Genesis if we didn't pause for just a minute before the end and say, what else in there that we didn't have time to really cover uh, is, is one of your favorite stories or favorite themes or something that you wanted to point out uh, before we move on to the end of the book? Yeah, I know that's a, that's a great question. I mean, themes, I really see, uh, let me just make this statement. I think that the story of Abraham and his descendants is a historical story 
to use now to use 21st century language. It's a historical story that scales. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it is something that you can then blow up and it still works in a much bigger way. We use that term in business all the time. I think this is a historical story that scales. I think what God is doing through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons and the 12 tribes is basically a, a real historical story and a real uh, story of God's redemptive plan, but it's one that scales and literally is forecasting the gospel in almost every page. Mm-hmm. And so that's a bigger picture than what you were asking. But I have always felt that Joseph, the story of Joseph to me was very inspiring and encouraging because it looks like even though you know that he's faithful and he's trying to follow God, nothing good happens to Joseph. Mm-hmm. And at the end, in chapter 50, when you, you read that verse that he, uh, where he says, you know, what you meant for bad, God meant for good, you see Joseph being faithful and God vindicating that. And on a personal level, there are times in our lives, times in my life, where I feel like, God, I'm really trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be faithful here, but boy, this is really difficult. And I imagine the Apostle Paul could have said the same thing 10 times over. And it's like, God, I'm being faithful here. You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says that, God, I'm being faithful here. Could you just heal me so I can do this better? But you see that God is always faithful and he vindicates his people. And I think that the story of Joseph ought to be one of the most encouraging stories to us. How about you? Well, I totally agree on the story of Joseph. I think that that is it's the capstone of the book of Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible. It's an amazing story. It reveals a lot of the things that we began this episode talking about the heart of God, the nature and character of God, the the sin and inhumanity and God's ability to redeem. You know, the story of Joseph, as you mentioned, is one of the greatest stories of redemption in the scriptures. Uh, things just go terribly wrong over and over and over again. And God ends up actually saving his people through Joseph. It's just an amazing testament to who God is. It, way back in the first part of this story uh, that we get in the Bible. So I, I always love the story of Joseph because of that. I think it ends right where the book of Genesis began. The character of God, his love for his people, his preservation, his wisdom, and uh, his, his great ability to bring uh, victory for the, for the people of God uh, right from the jaws of defeat in the land of Egypt, in famine, in family issues, in anything that we could imagine that's going on, God is faithful to his people to preserve them and to make good on his promises to them. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Okay, well, as we finish this, we we decided we, we hadn't said everything that we wanted to say. So this is kind of like a little deleted scene after the credits here um, where, where, we're, where we're talking. I don't, I don't know. You didn't watch the end of Stranger Things Season 3, did you? I have not yet seen that. Yeah. Okay. Is this a spoiler I'll, alert? I won't give any, I won't give any spoilers, <laughs> uh, but the deleted scene at the end of that was, was or the uh, scene after the credits on that one was pretty sweet. 
Um, I, I, you know, one of the passions that I have in doing these podcasts, I always want to make sure that we get to some notes for people that are actually reading the books that we're discussing Absolutely. as we're going through them, whether that's a Bible reading plan that just happens to coincide or whether people are actually just reading the text along with the podcast episodes. That's what I would, I would do. That's kind of what we're doing in preparation. Uh, is, you know, these two weeks, why not just listen to the podcast episode and then read the book of Genesis? Absolutely. And so I always want to keep a mind towards that or people that are taking notes on this that maybe would look back at them later. Um, I've heard from several people that that's what they do and then they they look at them before they do it in a reading plan or a study of some kind. Uh, I just had a couple of things that we didn't get into the podcast that I wanted to talk about for if you're reading Genesis, how to get the most out of it. And because of you know, time, we can't cover everything, but I think these are worth hitting. Uh, I've got five of them jump in. And if you, if you want to interject here uh-huh. at all, uh, the first one would be, so when Abraham comes into the land, it, it is, it is eventually the promised land. He goes, he stops in the promised land. He goes through it. Then he comes back and notice what he does when he gets to the promised land is he is walking the length of the land and then he is building altars to God, both at the north part of the land and the southern part of the land. Uh-huh. Abraham is going to build altars to God. Uh, it sets up what we're going to see later, especially in the in the Judges and in First Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. The places that are important in Genesis are also going to be really important in that span of time, and and then up to the exile. As well, for example, when worship gets divided in uh, the reign of Jeroboam, mm-hmm. we're going to see the same places that Abraham thought were significant come back to be significant again exactly. as well. Uh, one other thing, just on the topography of of the Promised Land, is it's really significant, and and I've never heard somebody teach on this, but it's really significant that that Abram buys the plot of land where he is going to be buried. So he goes and he negotiates that land in Shechem mm-hmm. uh, by the Oaks of Mamre. And he negotiates the land. He pays a fair price for it. And the first person actually buried there is going to be Sarah. And then Isaac and Ishmael are going to come back and bury Abraham there. And then we're going to see all kinds of, of, of things come back and happen in that same spot. And we'll have to come back to this when we get later in the Old Testament, because this actually runs all the way through to the end of the book of Judges. But if you look at the last line of the second to last two lines of Genesis, this is significant. So when you're arranging a book of, of history or the Bible, um, always pay attention to the beginnings and endings. Uh, at the end, you get this really what seems like an insignificant detail. Verse 25 of chapter 50, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Uh, First of all, that's pretty cool that Joseph was a mummy. Uh, But second of all, it's... uh, it's foreboding. It, it feels like it's foreboding and foreshadowing, and it is. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, pay attention to bones and where the bones go, who takes the bones where. This is a really fascinating thing that we'll get to at, at some point. Um, 
you know, it's it's hard to go through this whole thing and not talk about Melchizedek. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> because he's just such an amazing figure. He shows up two other places in the Bible. We see him in Psalm 110. We see him in the book of Hebrews, a uh, major player in Hebrews 7 and 8. He's a pre-Christ figure. There's a lot of great mm-hmm. theories about Melchizedek. Uh, what What's significant to you about him? Well, first of all, his name in uh, the Hebrew, it just has uh, consonants and the vowels were spoken. And so Melchizedek, the first three consonants are MLK and Melki or Melech means king. And the last three consonants are for the word Tzadik, Melchizedek. Tzedek, which means righteous, a righteous man, or the king of righteousness. And so even in his name, you see this forecasting. Melchizedek, his name means he's the king of righteousness, a title that will uh, obviously later be applied to Jesus. So he's a very shadowy figure, doesn't show up again until the book of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek, but his very name has always been significant to me. Mm-hmm. The fact that he comes from no lineage, he has no parents, uh, no beginning, no end. He's, people have said that maybe it's a uh, pre-incarnation of Christ. I think there are some theological issues with that uh, mm-hmm. that are tricky. But uh, he obviously is significant. He's an order of priesthood that the author of Hebrews is going to make a big deal out of. Jesus is the same order of priest as Melchizedek. Neither of them are from the tribe of Levi. Uh, so there's all kinds of mystery surrounding him. There's some great uh, first century B.C. and A.D. Jewish conspiracies about Melchizedek uh-huh. that uh, probably deserve their own probably deserve their own podcast episode. But the people at Qumran uh, wrote a lot about Melchizedek and and had some pretty interesting theories about who he was and what he was doing there at the time. But what we know from the text is he's this great king, so great that Abraham offers him a tenth of everything that he owns. Um, pretty significant figure there and is going to prefigure a lot of what Christ is going to do later. Uh, The last thing I I was going to say is we didn't get get very much time to talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're going to be major, major significant players through the rest of the Old Testament, especially how the individual tribes are known and uh, what they're known for. And mm-hmm. in the middle of Genesis, we get some stories about uh, the, the sons of Jacob and why, for example, um, Judah is not the first son, but he is the one through whom the line is going to be continued. And right. th- this is something that's just a little counterintuitive. The story of Genesis is about Joseph. Joseph is the most significant son. But in the span of the Old Testament, uh, Joseph is not the most significant son. Now, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, take a double portion because of what he did for the children of Israel. But actually, Judah is going to be the most interesting. And and I would add to that, um, the tribe of Levi is going to be really interesting going Uh through the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and, And you see at the end of chapter 49... Jacob is going to bless his sons and pay attention to that list. As he goes through, he's going to give qualities about the sons. For example, we see in 49.9 that Judah is a lion's cub, that we expect the lion from the tribe of Judah, and that's going to be referenced later in the Old Testament uh, to come from that line and and to eventually rule over the nations of the earth. And sure enough, in in, uh, Revelation, that's what we see. 
but you're going to see that for several of these these tribes, and uh, they're going to they're going to be pretty major players in the rest of the book. So I just wanted to say that there's some parts of this book that seem pretty boring that end up being really significant later, that are important to to uh, take note of: deaths, wells, altars, blessings of the kids, Melchizedek, bones, all things that are pretty interesting to to take stock of as you're reading the book of Genesis. Absolutely. Uh, you, you raise a really good per- the, uh, point there. The whole Bible, particularly Genesis, is a very earthy book. In other words, it's not some spiritualized, once upon a time, mythical kinds of stories with, with nice lessons to them, but they're, you know, they're people that are living real life. And you, you're right, the places show up over and over. The uh, wells become a, a, a recurring theme. The personalities, as you just went through, of some of the sons of Jacob, uh, become something that influences events all the way down. It's a, it's a story. It's a reality that's rooted in real human experience. And as you go through, you'll see some things that you don't understand the first time through, or stories that are like, "Why is that even here?" I would urge you just keep reading and absorb. Some of it's intellectual, but some of it's just feeling the environment and what's happening and the emotions. And it's uh, it's a story that's meant to engage our head and our heart. 